0: This is a remote voice podcast. I'm Daniel Silva, and this is letter number five in a series of letters that I'm writing from Arnhem Land. This letter is called Speechless and it's the last letter that I am recording retrospectively. Because at the time of recording, I haven't written a sixth. So the next episode is going to be a surprise to me. And this letter, this was a difficult letter to write. But an important one. And that's because it deals with something that certainly I've had to wrestle with in a place like Arnhem land where there are so many there are so many reasons to want to fight for something uh, there are so many causes, and I think that the more we are becoming aware of just how many causes there are generally, I think that is creating a a number of questions in terms of how to respond to that need and those needs and what is what is an adequate and authentic response and I think each individual makes that decision themselves but certainly the question is is one that requires a story if you'd like to read this story you can do that on my website danielsilver.org and I post pictures with the versions that I post on my website you can also subscribe and receive the letters by email if you'd like to read them um, I also post other things and will continue to But for now, this is letter number five, Speechless. Each day before setting, the sun exhales a warm breeze to brush from the sky any lingering clouds that a few lost souls might navigate by the stars. Then the crackle of burning grass rises from fires in front of every home, and the street lights, stationed to preside over vacant patches of territory like soldiers of the Queen's Guard, flicker into resolute attention. It's in the uncertain, in between stretches of shadowy dust that a mix of humble glow and determined incandescence do their best to share responsibility for lighting the way. In Arnhem Land, the saying goes that foreigners are either missionaries, misfits, mercenaries, or madmen. Which am I? Perhaps I'm a missionary. I come with books about history and talk passionately about ways we can work together for a better future. I frame the world in stories and revere the depth that lurks between their lines. I'm forever seeking the answers to an endless list of questions I scribble on pieces of paper that I stuff into a hand-stitched shoulder bag patched in places with the discarded artwork of children under 10. So I could be a madman. Yet I'm also a misfit. I enjoy the solitude out here. Space to think and feel in my own time. Far from crowds and traffic and banal conversation there's no pressure to fit in where a little strangeness is expected. As for a mercenary, well, the other day, in preparation to teach a group of kindergartners, I approached one of the Jungle assistants who sits in on every class. Like many younger women in their late 40s, she is overweight, diabetic, and moves languidly on skinny legs and bare feet. She is humble to the point of timidity, but when I asked her for a quick chat, I saw in her eyes that she is also fierce. I told her that I wanted to try something different that day, that I would sit the kids in a circle and give them each a piece of paper and some crayons. Then I would tell them that they were going to hear a very special story. At that point, when their little minds were tickled with anticipation, I'd give her the signal to begin telling the children about her life as a young girl in Gapuyak. She was initially shy about the idea, but it didn't take much in the way of encouragement to get her on board, and together we walked into the classroom. In the story she told, she was a young girl playing by the lake. Her favourite game was to gather some mud from the bank and fashion it into a little baby doll, then wrap the doll in paper bark and carry it around like the mother she would one day become. She'd carry it home to a nearby shelter she shared with her parents and siblings. It consisted of a raised platform of sticks suspended between four trees. There was a small fire underneath and a ladder to climb to and from the landing, on which spread out a few beds of soft paper bark beneath a slanted roof. When her family had to leave town to visit some nearby kin for a ceremony or to gather seasonal foods, they would burn the shelter to the ground and when eventually they returned, her father, brothers and uncles would build it again. That was less than 50 years ago. By the end of the story, the children were wrapped. They asked questions and were given explanations for some of the details. Most of them seldom hear stories like that one. I suspect because it's hard for people to talk about the old times, so much has changed. So they settle for a fire every night, and they search for somewhere to store the past in houses made of stone. She drew a picture of her story on the board and invited the children to do the same, which they did. Then one by one they carried their pictures to me, and I patiently asked them questions about what they'd drawn. Only then, when the children were telling me about their work, were the first words of English spoken. Up to that point everything had been in Yungumata, the language children speak at home and in the playground, the language of their parents and grandparents, the language of their world. In the 70s, a team of linguists arrived in Arnhem to learn that language. Their efforts resulted in the production of an entire body of literature made up of people's stories, along with an entirely new alphabet to store them in print. They also developed a method of instruction to teach a generation of Jungle people how to read and write a language that for 40,000 years had only ever been spoken. I think... Sometimes we forget that we had to learn English at school to be able to read and write. That literacy isn't the same as learning to speak. And sometimes we forget that no matter how many classes we took in French, the only people to learn it were those who went to France. Important things to remember in Arnhem Land, because there hasn't been bilingual education here since the turn of the century so children can't read or write the language that they speak. And beyond the school walls, no one speaks English. So, they can't really speak it either. I mean, they can ask for a glass of water, but they can't describe what it feels like to be unable to read letters from their grandparents or write letters to their future children. What it feels like to live in the shadowy dust between worlds where a dying language struggles to be understood with every labored breath. I can tell you what that looks like. One day I saw it, sitting with a teacher and some children. It was World Indigenous People Day, and she was trying to teach them about goko, which is honey. She said, We have 15 words for goko, each with a story to tell. You can use the stories to find the goko in the bush. The children smiled and listened. Most of them no longer learn this sort of thing from their parents. Then the teacher wrote the 15 words for honey on 15 pieces of paper and handed them to the children. But their expressions flattened. They no longer understood. I watched the teacher take a deep breath and plead with the children to concentrate. A dog started barking and over the noise they could barely hear her. She cried, Someone needs to know these words. Each one has a story to tell. But the children couldn't help her. Then a man arrived. He had clapsticks and he tried to teach the children to dance. He told them it would help them learn the words. But the children were too shy and the dog wouldn't stop barking. They couldn't feel the rhythm and the words blew away. Then the teacher turned to me. I didn't know what to say. I felt so helpless, and angry too. Enough to take up arms and join the resistance. I went home and read the biographies of Nelson Mandela and Mandoe Yunupingu, the entire history of bilingual education in the Northern Territory, and various articles on the related politics. Then I wrote down step-by-step instructions for how to organize a socio-political movement to bring back bilingual education. By the time I'd finished, it was late at night, I was sitting in a candlelit room, clutching my marching orders between clenched fists, listening to Leonard Cohen's Songs of Love and Hate. I made it to track three, Dress Rehearsal Rag. It's come to this, yes it's come to this, and wasn't it a long way down, wasn't it a strange way down? Full of taunts and tenderness, that song is written to a man on the verge of suicide, It's a chilling reminder of just how quickly a broken heart begins to lust for blood. When the song finished, I shivered and chuckled to myself. How close I'd come to joining a war. Then I folded my marching orders and held them to the flame. I may be a missionary, a misfit and a madman. But watching that paper burn, I made a promise to myself that I will never become a martyr but instead remain a dreamer with stories to tell. Okay, that was letter number five. Funny that getting to this point, because now I have read everything I've written so far, feels like a relief, like... I can look forward. And also reading that letter in particular felt so, felt so present and comfortable. I hope it sounded that way. (laughs) Maybe it didn't. Okay, I don't really have anything to add to that. I I suppose I will say that there is one person who has captured what I think the theme of that letter is, and that's um, the writer Tom Robbins, who writes these awesome, like, um, kind of like, I would describe it as Gabriel Garcia Marquez meets Jack Kerouac or something these sort of American magic realism stories. Anyway, in, um, in a book called Still Life with Woodpecker, in the blurb of that book um, is the phrase the conflict between social activism and romantic individualism. And I think that that is the tension that plays out in that story. And... By that sorry, I mean this letter, and that is the that is one of the real tensions of this place. For for people like myself who are visiting, it's like, whoa, there's you know there are a lot of things to fight for here, and and it's and there are some people whose fight is best had you know, in the political world. That letter is not to say that that's not a fight to have, you know. It's just not my fight to have. Because I'm living in the tension. Okay, I think that's enough before I confuse myself. So thanks for listening and I'll be back with a new letter next week. Letter number six.